0: Verses 21 through 25. We'll also read the 10th chapter of Matthew. We come to a new subject this morning. A new passage of scripture that we've not looked at before. So let us give our careful attention to the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. Mark chapter 4 verse 21. And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Then in the 10th chapter, And beginning with verse 26. Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetop. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered, therefore do not fear, you are of more value than many sparrows. May the Lord bless to our understanding these two familiar passages from His Word. Turn back with me now to the fourth chapter of Mark, the 21st verse. There is a common and popular interpretation of this passage, the point of which interpretation is good and can be defended from various passages throughout the Scripture, but a point which I don't believe can be properly drawn from this particular parable itself that popular interpretation of this story about the lamp on the lampstand rather than under the bushel or under the bed, the point that is drawn most commonly from it is this, that it's the Word of God inserting its influence in our hearts that causes us to shine, our lives to shine out the gospel in our everyday living, and that it is the point that if the disciples meet out or spread the gospel richly and profusely, then they shall receive as they have measured and be given a rich reward. Now, that's the most common interpretation, and that's a very good point, that it is the Word of God asserting its influence in our lives that causes us to be the light of the world. And the reason that people make this, the common interpretation, is is because it's so much like the Sermon on the Mount story in uh, Matthew 5 about our being light to the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do you put a lamp under a bushel but on a lampstand so that it gives light to everybody in the house. Therefore, let your good works so shine that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. There's a lot of similarities between the two. And because of that, people have assumed that they're both saying the same thing and that our parable is saying we need to shine as light into this world, allowing the Word of God to influence us and motivate us from the inside. Now, that's a good point. But I don't think our parable this morning is making that point for several reasons. First of all, because if it was to mean as the disciples measure out or spread the gospel richly and profusely, so they shall be richly and profusely blessed by the Lord. If that's what it says, then it seems to me that in verse 24, instead of saying take care what you how you listen, it should have said take care how you preach. But you notice the emphasis is not on taking care, taking heed to your preaching, but taking care, taking heed as to how you hear that message. Furthermore, we mustn't forget that Jesus Christ uses similar parables on different situations to make entirely different points so that when we read Matthew 10 a while ago, we wanted to impress you with the fact that that's the parallel passage in the book of Matthew, not the Sermon on the Mount. There's a similar parable there, but it's an entirely, not an entirely point, a different point, but another point that's being made. And so now let's see, what is this little parable, this seemingly harmless little simple parable that Jesus is telling us about not putting the the candle under a bushel or under a bed, but putting it on a lampstand? What is the point that Jesus Christ is making in this parable that reminds us so much of another similar one in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, always helpful in understanding a parable is looking at the context in which the parable comes. So consider with me the things that we've seen so far preceding verse 21. We've seen first of all at the beginning of Mark 4 the parable of the sower who went out sowing the word of the kingdom. Now you must understand that that's the starting point and the basis for understanding all the parables. The parables of the Lord Jesus Christ are built upon that basic foundational parable of the sower who who is the Lord Jesus Christ going out into the world with the word of the kingdom and implanting that word into human history. Secondly, remember what that word of the kingdom is. The word of the kingdom is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, that powerful word that He speaks through His servants so that when He speaks it through us, things happen and the kingdom of God is revealed in human history. The word of the kingdom which Jesus preaches is that literal, very literal message that he preaches through the mouths of his servants so that when he adds his voice to the voice of his servants, things happen, his kingdom advances, the power of his kingdom is experienced in families and in individual lives and many times in whole societies. The word of his kingdom goes forth. And then consider the succeeding context. The succeeding context, beginning with verse 26 and following, very specifically is concerned with the kingdom of God. So couch right in here in parables preceding it, talking about God's kingdom in the earth and the word of that kingdom, being followed by by parables, more parables about the kingdom of God. Very easy for us and I think very proper for us to see as the center focal point of this little parable a truth about God's kingdom in human history. Now, whenever we come to the parables, a basic way of interpreting the parables is asking the question, what's the main point that's being made? Don't for, look for little allegorical details. Now, what does this symbolize and what does that symbolize? But always ask the parables, what is the one point that's being made? Remember, we asked that to the sower and the soil. And you remember the one point that we made every Sunday, four or five Sundays running is the condition of the soil determines the growth and the development of the seed. That's the simple point with tremendous ramifications. All right, now what's the simple point that Jesus is making here? Write this down in your margin. Here's the simple point. It's it's this. The power of the kingdom of God will irresistibly and increasingly show itself in the preaching of the gospel. The power of the kingdom of God will irresistibly and increasingly show itself in the preaching of the gospel. Therefore, take heed to the way you hear the preaching of the gospel. Now that's the simple little point. It's concerned with God's kingdom. In some way or another, this lampstand is symbolic of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, they're not to be put under a bushel. They're not to be put under a bed. But the very purpose, the very nature of God's kingdom is to show itself, to display its power, to shine forth, to exert its influence in men, in the society of men. Look how this point is borne out. Look in the the, the, uh, 21st verse. Jesus points the absurdity of the position of many of His hearers. He said a lamp is not bought to be put under a, under a bushel or under a bed, is it? You put it on a lampstand so it can shine forth. The absurdity of their position. And what is the position that he's trying to refute here and show the absurdity of it? God did not bring His kingdom in Jesus Christ into human history for the purpose of concealing it and of hiding its power and of restraining and narrowing and confining its influence. That's as absurd as putting a candle under a bushel or under a bed. Just as the purpose of that candle is to shine brightly, the purpose of God entering into human history and establishing His kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ is so that that kingdom will not be concealed but will continually shine forth its influence and its power. And you see, you have people today who are guilty of holding the same absurd view that Jesus refutes in his day, you have people who still do believe that it's absolutely impossible and ridiculous to expect God's kingdom to expand and to grow and to develop in this sinful age in which we live. It's ridiculous to think that the Christian church will ever be anything other than a small group of people. We sang a great hymn just a while ago, the second hymn we sang. It's a great hymn. I love it. I love for us to sing it. But every time I sing it, there's one word that I can't say in good conscience. I've forgotten the thrust of the sentence, but it's the word few. And it says something to the effect, I'm glad you counted us among the chosen few. I don't like that word few. That word few grows out of a presupposition that we must expect because of this hostile, anti-Christian, sinful context in which we live that we must assume that the true church will always be small and the smallness is a sign of spirituality and we must assume that it's impossible to expect the advance of Christ's kingdom in human history here and now. Jesus Christ refutes that view once and for all, points out its its absurdity and points out that it's rooted in unbelief. You know, the one thing that that I like to ask people who believe that because of this sinful context in which we live, we can't expect God's church to grow and God's kingdom to influence society around us? You know what I asked them? I asked them a simple question. Why do you find it easier to believe that Satan will win than that Jesus will win? Why do you find it easier to believe that, God's, that Satan's kingdom will squelch and narrow and restrict the kingdom of God rather than believing that it's God's kingdom that cannot be restricted or held in by all of the forces of hell. You see, that absurd view that believes that it's impossible to think that God's kingdom will exert any real transforming change on a society like America is basically Satanism. It's basically the view that Satan's power is greater than God's power, and Jesus Christ shows the absurdity of it all. You must expect God's kingdom to exert its influence and to change things just as much as you should expect a a lamp to lighten the whole room. God didn't send His Son. God didn't enter into human history to conceal Himself, to restrict His power. His whole purpose of entering into human history was that there might, to use the words of the angels, be peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Not just peace in heaven, but peace the restoration of God's order, the advancement of God's kingdom on earth towards people upon whom God's good pleasure rests. And so in that 21st verse, Jesus points out the absurdity, the ridiculous nature of believing that it's the purpose of God to conceal himself rather than to shine forth the power and the glory of his kingdom throughout human life. Now notice in verse uh, 22, He says it positively this time. And now remember, he has reference to his kingdom. For nothing in reference to the kingdom of God and its invasion in the person of Christ. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. Oh, what a powerful statement that is. The Lord Jesus Christ entered into human history obscurely through the womb of a virgin born in a manger. And you know all the story in reference to his obscure humiliating birth. The purpose of the obscurity in connection to his birth was to confound and to confuse the high and the mighty. That he might reach the low and the humble and the believing and the base but His coming into obscurity was not for the purpose of remaining in obscurity. Notice what it says. Nothing is hidden but that except to be revealed. That Jesus Christ came in obscurity so that He could even more greatly highlight and emphasize the glory and the majesty and the power of His kingdom as it took root in man's heart and then it began to spread throughout human society. Nothing is hidden except for the purpose of being revealed, nor has anything been secret or obscure, but that it should come to light. Now, what's he saying? He's saying that it is the purpose of God, the eternal decree of God, and it's the very nature of God's kingdom that that kingdom show all, A-L-L, all of its power and glory among men as it comes with all conquering power into the world. I believe that's the point Jesus Christ is making here in this parable. He's saying it is the plan of God, the unchanging plan of God. And it's the very nature of God's kingdom that that kingdom display all of the power, all of the benefits, all of the blessings that God has to bestow among on man, among men all. You see that absurd view that believes that it's impossible to think that God's kingdom will exert any real transforming change on a society like America is basically Satanism. It's basically the view that Satan's power is greater than God's power, and Jesus Christ shows the absurdity of it all. You must expect God's kingdom to exert its influence and to change things just as much as you should expect a, light, a lamp to lighten the whole room. God didn't send His Son. God didn't enter into human history to conceal Himself, to restrict His power. His whole purpose of entering into human history was that there might, to use the words of the angels, be peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Not just peace in heaven, but peace the restoration of God's order, the advancement of God's kingdom on earth towards people upon whom God's good pleasure rests. And so in that 21st verse, Jesus points out the absurdity, the ridiculous nature of believing that it's the purpose of God to conceal Himself rather than to shine forth the power and the glory of His kingdom throughout human life. Now notice in verse uh, 22, He says it positively this time. And now remember, he has reference to his kingdom. For nothing in reference to the kingdom of God and its invasion in the person of Christ. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. Oh, what a powerful statement that is. The Lord Jesus Christ entered into human history obscurely through the womb of a virgin. Born in a manger, and you know all the story in reference to His obscure, humiliating birth. The purpose of the obscurity in connection to His birth was to confound and to confuse the high and the mighty that He might reach the low and the humble and the believing and the base. But His coming into obscurity was not for the purpose of remaining in obscurity. Notice what it says. Nothing is hidden but that except to be revealed. That Jesus Christ came in obscurity so that He could even more greatly highlight and emphasize the glory and the majesty and the power of His kingdom as it took root in man's heart and then it began to spread throughout human society. Nothing is hidden except for the purpose of being revealed, nor has anything been secret or obscure, but that it should come to light. Now, what's he saying? He's saying that it is the purpose of God, the eternal decree of God, and it's the very nature of God's kingdom that that kingdom show all, A-L-L, all of its power and glory among men as it comes with all conquering power into the world. I believe that's the point Jesus Christ is making here in this parable. He's saying it is the plan of God, the unchanging plan of God. And it's the very nature of God's kingdom that that kingdom display all of the power, all of the benefits, all of the blessings that God has to bestow among. us. Man among men, all and for Jesus to call himself the Son of Man is to claim for himself that sovereignty and that dominion that Daniel said the glorious Son of Man would possess when he came that was equal to God's. Turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, chapter 4 and verse 34. We read these words. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven And my reason returned to me and I bless the Most High and praised and honor Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him what hast thou done? Then in the 6th chapter and the 26th verse, And I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God and enduring forever, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and His dominion will be forever. 7th chapter, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. There it is. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, what's this Son of Man like? And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, the same irresistible, sovereign, everlasting, universal dominion that belonged to God the Father. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. Men of every language is written in italics. It ought not to be there. It's not in the original Hebrew. It's in English and not in the original. And it's watering it down. It says that all the peoples, all the nations, and every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, remembering those tremendous statements about the Son of Man, think about them whenever Jesus talks about His kingdom. And then when He says, My kingdom is not to be put under a bushel or under a bed, it is to shine. Understand that the only kingdom that He's talking about is this everlasting kingdom that God has given Him, and nobody can ward it off. Nobody can stop its advance. Nobody can stop its progress. It's an irresistible almighty kingdom that has entered into human history and God has decreed that all of his people shall receive all of the glories and power of that kingdom, that all of its power shall be displayed, all of its power shall be exerted, all of its benefits shall be bestowed upon those who bow before the king of that kingdom. We've seen on various other occasions that the theme of the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in the early church was the kingdom of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there have been all kinds of books written on the subject. Some of them not worth the paper they're written on. Others of them are to some value. Unfortunately, the ones that are of some value aren't of any practical use. They're mostly technical and exegetical. And sometimes we can get lost in trying to understand what in the world does the phrase the kingdom of God mean. Well, let me just tell you five simple little things that are the emphases of Jesus preaching whenever He talks about the kingdom. Just five simple little sentences. When Jesus talks about His kingdom, He's talking about His rule, His reign, and just remember these five things. First of all, it's present. It's here. Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The kingdom of God has come. My presence in the world is proof that my reign has already begun. I've already begun to rule not that I will someday, I've already begun it. That's number one. God's kingdom's already begun. Number two, it's growing. That's the point of the leaven. The leaven is is eventually leavening the whole loaf. The mustard seed is gradually growing into the biggest tree of the forest. There is development, there is advance, there is growth to my kingdom. It's not static. It's not just dynamic. Now that the kingdom of God has entered into the world, it shall continue to grow until it fills the whole heaven and earth. Third, so that's second. It's a growing kingdom. Thirdly, it is coming in perfection someday. It's not only present, it's not only growing, but it's growing towards a goal. It's coming in perfection someday. Someday God's kingdom will be totally perfect, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth perfectly. All the people who've lived in rebellion against Christ and persist in their rebellion will be sentenced to an eternal hell, and the new heavens and the new earth will be populated with God's perfected people. So it's here, it's growing, it's coming in perfection someday. Fourthly, the kingdom of God is in men. That's where it starts. Inside, the person. The kingdom of God, Christ's rule when it starts, it conquers man's hearts. It brings his heart and his mind into captivity to Christ. It begins in human hearts. The kingdom of God is in men. And fifthly, the kingdom of God is among men not only an inner spiritual thing, but a thing that's going to change us on the outside and change all areas of human expression and human activity and human relationships. That it's not only a spiritual inner thing, but Christ is establishing His kingdom among the nations. He's Christianizing nations. He is overturning nations that refuse to be Christianized. He's changing churches. He's changing schools. He's changing economic systems. He's changing political structures. And on and on and on. The kingdom of God is among men as well as in men. So whenever you read about the kingdom of God, the preaching of Jesus, just remember those five things. He's talking about His rule. It's here. It's growing. It's coming in perfection. It starts in the human heart and it continues to expand among men. That's what Jesus has reference to when he talks about the kingdom of God. And he says that was its purpose. That's why God put it here. That's why God invaded human history. So that it would make a difference. It would change things. You know, on both sides of that truth, you have people who make mistakes. You have those that we've already mentioned on this side who make the mistake of saying, that the gospel of the kingdom of God will make no real impact upon our culture and our society because this society is so rotten to the core, the Antichrist will eventually overrun us. Now, that's by hyper-conservatives. are not really conservative, that's satanic. And then over on this side, you have the liberal German theologians who say the same thing. The kingdom of God will make no impact upon society. There's no content to it. The kingdom of God is some irrational thing that hits you like a lightning bolt out of the blue, and the only thing you can say is you've been hit. And then it's up to you to put the content on it that seems best uh, to, to describe your situation. So you see, what's interesting is the liberals and conservatives who rebel against this viewpoint fall into the same camp, into the camp of the enemy. The liberal says you can't expect the gospel to make an impact on our age. The ultra-conservative says you can't expect the gospel to make an impact upon this age. They join hands against the truth. And the Lord Jesus Christ declares it is the purpose of the lampstand to shine, not to conceal itself. And it is the purpose of God's kingdom to make itself felt in the lives of men and women. And then notice in verse 23 through 25, you have another tremendous indication about this, this thing. And that is, notice what's related here now. Notice 23 through 25. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. <clears throat> and then it goes on to talk about hearing. So when Jesus talks about hearing, He's talking about not just hearing anything, hearing radio stations, hearing ring radio. He's talking about hearing preachers, preaching of the Word of God. That's His use of the word hearing. It's hearing preaching of the Word of God. Now notice what's tied in in these verses. He ties in the revelation of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, which we've been talking about for three weeks. He ties in with that the experience of the power of the kingdom of God as it works its way in capturing darkness, scattering darkness, and changing lives. He combines those things with the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom by men. Tremendous point. We've seen for the past three days that God Himself reveals to some the mysteries of the kingdom of God. We've seen this morning that God's power is experienced in the lives of men and women. And now in verses 23 through 25, he says it's all wrapped up with hearing. You want to be in a place where God will reveal the mystery of His kingdom? You want to be in a place where God's power and the power of that kingdom is experienced in individual lives, in families, and in societies, He said that place where power is being felt and where revelation and enlightenment is taking place is under the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. You that have ears to hear, take heed that you hear properly, Because the power of this kingdom advances itself in human history through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And you know why that is? Because Jesus preaches in our preaching. We'll not make this point again. We made it just a few weeks ago, but it's important and exciting to understand. In Romans 10, it says, How can they call upon Him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It's not how shall they believe in him about whom they have not heard. It is how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear him without a preacher? I didn't say it. Romans 10. The reason the power of the kingdom of God is experienced in the preaching of the word of God and the reason people's eyes are open to behold the wonders of the mysteries of the kingdom of God during preaching is because in the faithful preaching of the word of God, Christ mixes his own voice with the voice of that preacher. So that you and I must pray, O Lord, as the preacher's voice, as the preacher preaches to my ear, Christ, you preach to my heart. That's spearhead that's where the power of the kingdom is being exerted that's where the lampstand shines and makes its influence felt throughout all areas of human experience now because all of that is true because all of that is true notice the application that he makes verse 24 and he was saying to them take care what you listen to. Take heed to your hearing. In other words, he's telling them, he wants to impress them with the urgency and the importance of hearing the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom with perception. Not just give it a haphazard hearing, but a concentrated uh, effort, diligent effort undivided effort of attending to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. And after all of these glorious things that he says about the purpose of God's kingdom and the growth of God's kingdom as it irresistibly and increasingly shows its power in the gospel of Christ. He says, having said all that, take heed, be careful what you listen to time and again through the gospels. We're said to take heed that we hear, take heed what we hear, take care how we hear. You and I as Christians, there's an urgency about not just Christians, but all men, whether you profess the name of Christ or not. There's an urgency and an importance about this thing of giving our undivided, frequent, regular attention to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take care that you hear because it is by hearing that people are saved. You remember what we saw in the Old Testament several weeks back where God says, hear and your soul shall live. Not see and your soul shall live. Not touch and taste and smell that your soul shall live. But hear. Christianity is not a religion of the eye. It is a religion of the ear. That's the thing that God continually had to impress upon His people and they never could learn. And so they were always building idols and various kinds of literal uh, aids to worship. It's a religion of the ear. It all has to do with hearing. That as we hear the voice of the preacher, Christ's voice comes through that voice into our own heart, through the ear. And because of that, it's important that we put ourselves in a place where we can hear frequently and regularly and put our children in a place where they can hear. Be careful what you listen to. Jesus isn't saying just make sure you hear some kind of preaching no matter what you, what's being preached because you can't divide the act of preaching from what's being preached. And if the truth is not being preached, preaching's not taking place. And so any of our dear and beloved and friendly visitors and guests here this morning If you're members of a church or you're attending a church where the gospel of Christ is not being preached, I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, cast off the shackles of the slavery of a false gospel and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in your soul shall live, not any kind of preaching, Not just some kind of preaching that has to do with social relationships and straightening up the environment, but the preaching that has to do with the kingdom of God and its claims and its life and its joy and its power and its king in human experience. Submit yourself to that kind of preaching. I exhort you in the name of the king of the kingdom of God to leave those churches and come where your soul can hear and live. Not just to this church, but to faithful churches throughout Atlanta where the gospel of the kingdom is being preached, and there's not that many. Take heed that you hear. Take heed heed what you hear. Take heed how you hear. It's not just coming and filling a chair under the sound preaching of the Word of God. That's not what he's talking about. It's making sure with perception, alertness, concentrated, concentration, that you hear that preached word. Take care that you hear. Take care what you hear. Take care how you hear. And then he goes on and gives several reasons why it's so urgent that you be very careful in the way you hear the gospel of the kingdom of God. Notice his reasons. Notice in verse 23. A true understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of God is sovereignly given by God. Notice words that we've seen before there in verse uh, 22, 22. See the word mystery, Uh, nothing is hidden, nothing been secret. We've already talked about mysteries over there in verse 11. We saw that the mystery of the kingdom is is that which God reveals to people of His own choice. And the reason you and I must be so careful in the way we hear these things is because an understanding of them at all is dependent upon the sovereign activity of God himself who gives understanding of these things to whom he pleases. And because that's true, you and I can't come to the preaching of the word with some kind of arrogant, cocky, intellectual attitude. You and I must come before the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ with humility, with meekness, with with submission, saying, Oh God, I confess, I recognize my understanding of these things does not depend upon my intelligence or upon my education but it all rests upon your sovereign decision to give me understanding. There is an urgency that we hear properly because it's all in the hands of God. But notice in verse 23, he indicates another reason. He talks about spiritual ears here. Those of you who have the kind of ears that it takes to hear, hear spiritual discernment and insight. And he's saying there's an urgency about listening carefully whenever the word of the kingdom is preached because a true understanding of these things is impossible without the inner work of the Holy Spirit. John 3, 3, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see it is what it says. And in order for a man, no matter how much he's read the Bible, In order for a man or a woman or a young person to understand and experience the power of the kingdom in his life, there must be this previous working of the Holy Spirit on his mind and on his heart giving him perception, giving him spiritual understanding, and without the work of the Holy Spirit, he'll never see, he'll never see the glory of the kingdom of God much less experience the power and the delights of that kingdom in his own life. It is urgent that we take heed to the way we hear, not only because an understanding of this thing is dependent upon the sovereign activity of God, but because a proper understanding is dependent upon the working of the Holy Spirit who works with and through and in and by the preaching of the Word of God upon human hearts. Then there's a third reason. Notice in verse 24 you have an interesting little figure. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By what standard of measure it shall be measured to you? By your standard of measure it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has, to him shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him." Now that's an interesting figure. What does it mean? I think it means simply this when it talks about measuring, it's talking about a very common Jewish phrase of that day and it applies it to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not saying to what measure you meet out the gospel to other people, you will be blessed in direct proportion to that. That's not the point. The point is, so to speak, purely human words, It all depends on how big your measuring cup is that you take to the preaching of the gospel as to how much the preaching of the gospel is going to benefit you throughout your life and how much power of it is going to be experienced in your life throughout your lifetime. It all depends on the size of the measuring cup. And whatever size of the measuring cup you come praying to God to fill, that's what He'll fill and you take away and you experience the power of it in your own life and so if you come to the preaching of the word and there's not this rich and profound beseeching and pleading and begging as it were oh God I want all of the power and the glory and the joys and the life of the kingdom of god that you promised to sinners i bring not a pint measuring cup nor a quart measuring cup i bring the biggest measuring cup i can find fill it to the brim oh god so that i can take this power and this joy and this life and be your servant throughout all my days and you come to the preaching of the kingdom of god without any real concern without any real thirst without any real hunger without any real desire to experience the power and the life of the kingdom, and you'll receive that same kind of sparse blessing in return. Whatever measure you measure, that's the measure you'll receive. Whatever your attitude and hunger and appetite as you come to the preaching of the Word, to that degree, you will be filled. And now there's some tremendous points here. Notice what he says in verse 25. He couples with it this. Hearing is urgent because what will ultimately be received in the kingdom of God then depends upon what a person possesses of it now. Notice. Whatever benefit of the kingdom of God you shall experience in the future depends upon your possession of that kingdom now. Further, present possession of the power of the kingdom of God with its life and its joy depends upon the proper hearing of the preaching of the gospel. How you're blessed and your children, according to the book of Proverbs, in future days is directly related to the measuring cup and the way you come and hear the preached word now. And what you possess of the kingdom of God now in its greatness will determine how much you will experience of the power of that kingdom in later days and your possession of it at all depends, humanly speaking, depends upon the way you listen, the way you hear the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. He says, whoever has, more shall be given. Whoever has not, even what he has will be taken away. Do you know that listening to the preaching of the Word of God is one of the most dangerous things that you ever do? We're talking about, with utmost seriousness, about a man or a woman or a young person's response to the preaching of the kingdom of God. Your response to the preaching of the kingdom of Christ and your eternal destiny and your presence are all wrapped up together. You come to the preaching of God ready and anxious and hungry to experience more of its power and its joy in your life, and God will bestow upon you far more than you were even prepared to receive. You come to the kingdom of God, and there's not much teachableness. There's not much hunger. There's not much appetite for spiritual things. You're more concerned about other things. The Bible says not only will you not be fed it'll be taken away from you what you thought you had in the first place so you see listening to the preaching of the kingdom of christ is one of the most dangerous things a man or a woman ever does because no matter what your intentions were when you walked in this room you will not i guarantee you will not leave this room as you walked in none of you. me included When the kingdom of Christ is preached, the power of the kingdom is experienced. And where there's an appetite for the power and the joy of that kingdom, there is blessing and there's benefit and there's enrichment. But where there's dulled appetite and where there's no hunger, even that which we think we have is taken away and there's hardness of heart. And my friend, you will not leave this room as you walked in. The hearing of preaching is anything but neutral. Maybe there's some of you who are visiting today and you thought today you would come to a church that was the closest one by to get a nice quick sermon and go home. You'll not leave this place as you walked in. That's how serious it is to take heed to how we hear. Hearing the preaching of the kingdom is never a neutral, harmless exercise. Well, let's close. two points i want to leave with you the first if the point of this parable is true and it is that we not only that we can expect that we can expect the gospel to be even more widely embraced than it is right now that's the point of the parable if that's true that we can expect the kingdom to advance and the gospel to even be more widely embraced by people than it is now, then you and I can say with John Calvin, who wrote, There never was so great a clap of thunder heard in any corner of the globe than the sound of the voice of the gospel over the whole world. The lamp of the gospel was lit by the apostles so that it should shine the world over. If this parable is true, we can say that and it means that we can face the future in our service of Christ with an attitude of hope and confidence that victory is ours. We live in a hostile context. We must take seriously the fact that we live in a context that does not want the gospel that we offered in and of its strength. But I believe in God more than I believe in Satan. I believe in the power of grace more than I believe in the power of sin. I believe in the triumph of the kingdom of Christ, not the triumph of the kingdom of Satan. And so I can preach the gospel and I could witness and I can seek to be faithful even in my earnest way to the ordinances of the Scripture and expect victory and real advance and real progress and success in the work that I undertake for the Lord Jesus Christ. That light is not under a bushel. It is not under a bed. That light is on a lampstand and by its irresistible might and inquenchable light, it will not stop until it has scattered all darkness and put down and subdued all opposition and then Jesus will come. If that parable is true, face the future like that with a boldness that regardless of the opposition, we're not going to fear those who can kill the body. We fear Him who can cast both body and soul into hell. But we will not fear man. We will publish that gospel. We will spread it. We'll live by it. We'll share it with other people. Because we believe as we do, God's kingdom will advance. And lastly, understand this. When you receive from the sower, what you receive from the sower will be received in double measure from the judge. That's the great underlying thought of this parable. The sower who first implanted that word in your heart is the judge before whom someday you'll stand. And what you will have received from the sower now and what you've done by, with is directly related to what you will receive from the judge at the end of time. The great message of the gospel, there is a sower in his field. That field is the world, it's his field. That sower is planting seed. That seed is growing. And what you have received from that sower now, and what you've done with that seed, will determine what you receive from that judge at the end of time because the soul is judge. let us pray Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli I guess aha in my dentist's office